Welcome to the CRISPR revolution. This is CRISPR Cuts, a podcast dedicated to the world of genome engineering. Take a break and join us as we guide conversations with an expert CRISPR cast about this cutting edge science. Hi everyone, welcome to CRISPR Cuts. Today we have with us Joseph Miano, he goes by Joe. He's a professor at Medical College of Georgia at Augusta University. He has expertise in CRISPR, but really has just spent several years interrogating gene regulatory elements and how they impact function in mice models. So I'm really happy to have Joe on here today. Welcome. Hello, Amino. It's a pleasure to be back with Synthago. Thanks. Joe, let's start by with an introduction. Uh, just maybe tell us about yourself, your current position, how you got here. Sure. So I'm a professor, as you said, at the Medical College of Georgia. I'm a New Yorker. You can tell I'm not from the South. My background is in vascular biology, so I have a PhD in vascular pathobiology from New York Medical College. I did my training, my postdoc training with Eric Olson, who uses CRISPR quite a bit in the context of muscular dystrophy in Texas, and then I went up to the Medical College of Wisconsin before going to the University of Rochester, where I was for 20 years, and where the CRISPR really started in my lab. And so most, as you said, most of my work uh, revolves around using different CRISPR editing platforms to interrogate the dark matter of our genome to discover what, what the meaning is of some of these interesting elements that we have defined. Thanks. Actually, I'm glad you kind of said the last line because that is exactly what I had picked out when I had looked at your bio before. You had said dark matter of the genome. Can you tell us wh wh what do you mean by dark matter and why is that important to study? So it used to be in the late 60s, early 70s, that the, the genome was considered to be mostly comprised of junk DNA, but we know now that that's not the case, that most of it is functional in some way, shape, or form. And so there are a myriad number of uh, DNA binding transcription factors, some 1,000 plus, that bind to specific elements, and we're interested in one class of these elements. And all of these elements are found in, in this dark matter or this non-coding portion of the genome, which is like 98 to 90 9% of the 6 billion nucleotides of each cell. So we have a, a reasonably good handle on where to look for these nuggets of gold. And we've used computational tools and with the CRISPR editing platform emerging in 2013, it's made our life so much easier now to literally at will change at the single base level, even these binding sites and find out what the consequence is. And that, that has enormous implications for understanding what the single nucleotide variants associated with diseases, how those may be functioning or dysfunctioning in the context of various common diseases and rare diseases. That's really fascinating. And speaking of that research, you recently had a paper published first in BioArchive and then in Genome Biology. Can you tell us more about that? So that was wonderful. Uh, David Liu, who's just a, an amazing human being and fantastic scientist, as you know, he, he developed the base editing platform. I remember when that first came out and I spoke with David about using it to subtly edit the binding sites we're interested in, which are called card boxes. These are literally hundreds of thousands of them across the genome and they control myriad programs of gene expression. But at that time, and even to some extent today, the base editors are not so perfect because the sequences around these card boxes have multiple C's and it's oftentimes difficult for the base editor to precisely and only edit the one base we want to edit. 
in that binding site. And so the prime editing platform, when that came out, and it's so funny because it, it emerged right as we arrived here at the Medical College of Georgia from New York back in late October of 2019. And it was the first thing we did. As soon as that paper was published, we jumped on it. And of course, David makes everything available to us through Edging. So we bought the plasmid and started running with it. And it was really challenging because we were we didn't even have our core set up for doing any injections. So it was truly a tour de force, multi-institutional uh, collaboration that involved Cornell. Of course, David's lab at Cornell up in Ithaca who did all of our injections. And so over the course of many months, we were able to generate the mice with the, with the prime editing two platform and generate this one interesting mutation, which was a single base substitution that we described in the bioarchive preprint in the genome biology paper. And that single base edit surprisingly abolished the target genes expression, which really was unprecedented in mouse genetics. So it was a really fortuitous find and it, it established the prime editing platform as a as a viable tool to make very precise edits in the mouse genome. So we're pretty proud of the work. Yeah, no, definitely. Congrats on that. And uh, I did take a look at the bioarchive paper. It's really very interesting. Ever since prime editing came out, it has, or even base editing, right? Like there's been so much, not even speculation, but just talk about how these will now complement the traditional CRISPR system and how, how all of these tools will be helpful in, in research. And it's great that you could actually do that. Is this the first time that prime editing was done in a mouse model or have there been similar things done before? Sure. So at the time, of course, it had only been done in cells. So David's nature paper really delved into cells. I think he edited some 175 different edits in various cell types, but not in any in vivo context. The plant people actually published first outside of cells. And there were a series of papers, at least one of which David was involved with, showing prime editing worked in plants, albeit with varying efficiency. We worked hard, and despite the, uh, the multi-institutional collaboration, we got scooped by a, a paper that came out of China in Cell Discovery in April of uh, 2020, and they showed in early embryos that prime editing could work, in principle, albeit with, with some errors. And so during that time, we had really honed in on our project, which was to compare the traditional CRISPR-mediated HDR editing with this Prime Editing 2 platform. So it was really a comparative study. So as far as that goes, that was a first. But no, we, we weren't the first. We were actually technically the third because AIDA's group in, at MIT published a bioarchive preprint just before we did, just after the CRISPR conference, actually, at Cold Spring Harbor. So I guess you'd say we got the bronze medal. But it, it was a different study. I mean, as I said, we, we did a comparative study at one locus using two different platforms, and it was intriguing. The results were, were quite uh, revealing in terms of how precise and error-free the prime editing platform is versus the more error-prone HDR platform. Yeah, no, definitely. And I think, you know, every bit kind of matters because just all of this research is so new. So it's still very definitely super interesting to even see the, those comparative results because that has really been one of the questions about how prime editing compares with CRISPR, right? So that's like just nice to see a, a very comprehensive comparison. You spoke a lot about, you know, collaborating with different people on this. I'm curious about how did COVID kind of, you know, impact your plans and, how, you know, were you derailed or how did you manage collaborations with the pandemic? 
This was really my favorite collaboration to date. I really enjoyed working with David's group. It was wonderful working with, with these groups and John Cimenti at Cornell. Yeah, so the challenge was, for us, it was a double whammy, right? So we, we were amidst setting up our lab, getting our, our mouse core set up. And then no sooner did we arrive and started to order equipment that then the COVID-19 crisis hit. So it was really, really a double whammy for us. And it, it was, it was quite challenging to coordinate things, but everybody was really wonderful and very supportive of this effort to show prime editing could work in an animal model system. So again, I, I couldn't be prouder of, of all the interactions, uh, including the one with Synthago, because I believe Synthago synthesized our peg RNA. That was their first peg RNA synthesized, I believe. And they, they synthesized it, I think, in December of 2019. We jumped on it immediately. So it was challenging, but in the end, uh, it all worked out. Again, it was really nice. Uh, it was nice to work with these leaders, these giants in, in uh, genome editing. Yeah, no, good to hear that. It's it's really been inspiring, you know, with just all these papers or in all scientific efforts, especially during the last year, where it's just been amazing to see how despite the pandemic, people have been collaborating and just like research keeps moving on, which, which is exactly what on, we need. Regardless. Yeah, exactly. So great to hear that. Were there other challenges in terms of, say, the technical aspect, having worked with CRISPR before, taking on prime editing, were there any challenges unanticipated or even maybe anticipated that you had to work through? Sure. In the very beginning, we had to get the prime editor to be synthesized in the lab. And so from the, the plasmid, we had to make the RNA so that it was high quality RNA to inject into the fertilized embryo of the mouse. That took a little while, but a, a very talented postdoc in my lab, Amr Ghanam, worked very hard to to get that finally to the point where it was very high quality. In fact, we give we give that RNA out now to labs uh, freely. We've got stockpiles of it of the RNA. So that was a bit of a challenge right out of the gate. But it, it took about a month or two to get that worked out. After that, no, I think we had really good fortune with it. Uh, Synthago's peg RNA worked beautifully, and and to be honest, I was quite surprised at how well it worked. The worry I had was that the prime editor would would just continue to uh, polymerize into the scaffold and we would get the edit, yes, but we would also get some scaffold RNA incorporated into the final DNA template and that didn't happen. So it really worked perfectly, which was astonishing to me and was quite pleasing. Of course, this is one locus, one protospacer of one locus. So there's a lot more to do, and I'm sure there are going to be instances where the prime editing may not work as well as it did in our hands at that locus, the T-SPAN 2 locus. Yeah, no, absolutely. But just a little bit more on that. So in terms of next steps for you, let's say, even experimentally to kind of what would you want to do next? Look at more locuses or so, and then also big picture thinking about how now with like CRISPR, base editing, prime editing, all of them being around, where are we headed? So the, the next step in my lab right now, actually, we're, we're using the prime editing platform to try to do other things in the mouse that David's group had shown in cells, namely incorporate LOXP sites to make conditional mouse models. We haven't results yet on that. but And of course, we are using the prime editor now. It is our go-to platform for making single nucleotide polymorphisms in the mouse, which is really what we do a lot of, modeling human disease, for example, in mice. 
And so we're actively doing that. In terms of big picture, we really have the idea of using the prime editing platform in utero for genome editing of the embryo in utero. So we want to use the prime editing platform to edit embryos in utero with a method known as iGonad. And this was something that was developed by Guru Murti and others several years ago. And it really simplifies the whole process of editing mouse embryos, which we normally have to create a lot of fertilized embryos and, and micro-inject them individually. It's, it's rather labor-intensive. But we really want to use the, the two-component prime editing platform to electroporate embryos in utero. And so that's something we're uh, really doing right now, and we're trying to fix a mutation, a single-base mutation in a mouse model of a human disease to correct it. And that would be sort of a proof of principle that this can work uh, in utero. And whether that's translated into human in utero editing, uh, that remains to be seen. But certainly the field is moving at a ferocious pace. As we all know, it's really hard to keep up with things, whether it's base editing, CRISPR, or even zinc finger nuclease and talons. The companies and, and laboratories around the world are actively pursuing a number of important questions that will have immediate relevance to the human condition and to our entire biosphere. Yeah, no, absolutely. I like to say we've been globally CRISPRized with all the platforms. Yeah, no, that's a perfect description. When I kind of entered the CRISPR space and started writing about it, like three years back, it's still just never gotten boring. There's always new stuff. And like the field is just moving so fast that I still feel like I'm, I'm just catching up. So it's been great to kind of be at this cutting edge or for me writing about the cutting edge, but for all of you who are actually working at the cutting edge of this technology, it's amazing the possible impact that this research is going to have. So you, you had given a talk at our World CRISPR Day, spoken possibly a little bit about this work that you just spoke about right now. And one of the things that I had asked you was about what do you think about the future of genome engineering? And your quote was, much like past revolutionary discoveries, genome engineering will be used to achieve desirable and nefarious objectives. So necessitating strict global governance and regulation. And so I think that's perfect to kind of continue on what you just mentioned before, you know, the ethics of once the technology is growing really fast, how do you then curb it, right? Like once people know you can do all of this stuff, can you speak a little bit about just ethics and governance and what kind of regulations are there and what should we have to kind of make this a more controlled and productive direction for CRISPR? This is a little bit out of my wheelhouse, but uh, I'm not a bioethicist by any stretch, but, and I've, I have I have to admit, I haven't followed the, the literature carefully on this. It's a tremendously important issue that a number of people are trying to tackle. But like many people, I'm, I'm a little worried about the speed at which things are moving. And despite its ease in use and, and the promise it's shown, even most recently with the, with the cure of the beta thalassemia and sickle cell, it was just published in New England Journal of Medicine, it's just this early this year, really, I think we need to pause and just make sure that uh, before we go too quickly, we're, we're really sure about what we're doing. Of course, the public uh, is, is very familiar now with, with CRISPR. It's, we have the Nobel laureates, uh, Jennifer Dowd and Emmanuel Charpentier. So, and, and the wonderful movie uh, out of Netflix that a number of people, including my son who hates science, uh, actually sat through and watched. So human nature, right? Yeah. 
so wonderful movie. So we're all, uh, we're global too now, right? So, I mean, this pandemic has really uh, demonstrated that, how um, vulnerable we are as a biosphere, as a, as a, as a world. And so uh, what uh, we do here in the States or across the world really is going to impact the entire world. And so we really need, as a global community, we need to be bound together and determined to do this correctly and to just work carefully, judiciously, and with the public trust in mind, right? So we, we really need to make sure that our our parents, our brothers and sisters who aren't scientists, that they're, that they're on board with this, that they're understanding it, that they support it, and that way we, we have as many stakeholders as, as possible going forward. Well said. And I think like, you know, what you spoke about just informing people around us who are not scientists, I think is a big part of it because, you know, if everyone is kind of aware of what we can do with this technology, but at the same time think about what we should, it's just a bigger sphere of people who are concerned and worried in the right amount, let's say, about what could happen with this. So, uh, which is one of the big reasons for, you know, scientific communication around CRISPR and also what we try a lot with the podcast to just have different guests and speak about all these different aspects, not just about progress in the field, but also the other aspect of to know when to hit the brakes, right? So that's also important to know. I had one last question for you. It is a fun one. What would have been your alternate profession if you were not a scientist? Well, I grew up not really embracing science or really anything related to to academics because I was a hockey player for most of my life uh, as a youngster and right up until the age of probably 20 or so. So I thought I was going to be playing in the National Hockey League. <laughs> but uh, my size prevented that. So that's what I wanted to do. But what if I had chosen it, I would probably choose that. But of course, it did not choose me. So somehow I got interested in science and here I am. But yeah, I guess I would be playing in front of, uh, well, now sparse crowds, throwing the puck around and banging bodies. <laughs> oh, yeah, very interesting. You you had a very quick one to go. Generally, people have to think a lot about that, but science was your backup one then. So you actually had another one. Yeah, there was no science in my family. I mean, I don't know where it came from. It came from somewhere, probably college. Some uh, professor, I'm sure, uh, planted the seed and it just stuck. So, so I hung <laughs> up the skates and uh, picked up the pipette man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a transition one doesn't hear off very often. So glad you did. You're making you know big difference and very inspiring work here. So I'm really glad that we got you on the podcast today and were able to discuss all of your amazing work. It was a pleasure sharing thoughts with you. Thanks for listening to CRISPR Cuts. I invite you to check out the Synthigo blog, The Bench, for more great CRISPR content. Please send us any feedback you have by contacting us on Twitter. And if you want to join in as a guest on our podcast, email us at crispercuts at synthigo.com. CRISPR Cuts is a scientific podcast by Synthigo, produced by Kevin, Minu, and me, Bobby. Additional production by Resonate Recordings. Our cover art is by Jeff Merrick. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon.